I think knowing yourself is so critical to finding success in life. And you said that one of the things that you knew very clearly when you left the military is that you knew what you were looking for. What was it that you saw as an, a potential assistant brand manager at Procter & Gamble that, that made it seem so clear that it was a good fit for you? So there were you. really two things. And, and actually, even to clarify about knowing myself, I think at the end of the day, I knew what my values were. Right. And, and it's actually one of the pieces of advice that I do give to people as they're looking for their, you know, where to start their career and their job is, at the end of the day, you are largely all about who your character is and what values are important to you. It's about doing the right thing. It's about, it is about integrity and ethics. And um, I like to say, choosing to do the harder right versus the easier wrong. Being a CEO, now you've been doing it for a while, what does it, what does it take to be a great CEO? I think the first thing is being very, very humble um, and uh, always being open and always listening. Um, I like to think of myself as not smarter than anybody else in the company. At the end of the day, nobody's going to remember me for my business results. They're going to remember me for what I did for them. It's not being afraid to take a stand on important issues. And I do think that there's a role for business and especially a role for CEOs. This is not about me as an individual, but the platform of the CEO job or office to take a stand on important issues of our times. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion and welcome to the BOF podcast. This week on Inside Fashion, I sit down with Levi's CEO, Chip Berg. Now, Chip is one of the most fascinating people I've met in the last few months at BOF. He started out his career in the military following college and then jumped ship and joined Procter & Gamble, the big global consumer packaged goods firm. And then somehow he found himself at the helm of Levi's, the iconic American denim company. In each of these places, Chip says he has learned new lessons and found himself leading organizations that actually stand for something. That's particularly important at a time when the world is in so much turmoil and there's so much polarization. Chip believes that big companies really need to stand for something. So not only do we get Chip's lessons on what it takes to be a great leader and a great CEO, we also get a sense of the personal values that drive this man and why he's been so successful at turning around Levi's, which faced years of plummeting sales and decline. So without further ado, here's Chip Berg, Inside Fashion. Well, good afternoon, Chip. Good afternoon, Imran. Hi, how are you? Excellent. Great You've been here. on a European whistle-stop tour. I have indeed. Spent the entire week here in Europe, and uh, it's been inspiring in many ways. And where have you been so far? So, started the trip in Frankfurt, uh, where our business for the central cluster is headquartered. We just moved into a new office there in the last year. So that was very, very exciting. Um, it's amazing the difference an office can make in terms of culture and motivation and spirit in the organization. Our business is really strong. Uh, from there, we went to Berlin, uh, spent the day in the market in Berlin, basically walked stores all day, which is always fun, a lot better than sitting in the office. 
uh, from Berlin to Paris, uh, where I did a, a town hall. Actually, I did a town hall. We call them chips and beer. Yeah. Cute, huh? <laughs> um, we did chips and beer in Frankfurt. We did another chips and beer with our organization in Paris, which is the headquarters for our southern cluster of France, Spain, and Italy. And, uh, and then spent the afternoon in the market in Paris. We've got a big store on the Champs-Élysées, spent some time there, finally um, doing what it should be doing. It's a great store. And then flew to London last night and spent the day here. We did a chips and breakfast this morning with the organization here. And those are largely just questions and answers about everything from business to career advice to, and I go wherever the flow is. It's totally unscripted. I may say a couple of minutes of big picture comments about our business and where we are and where we're going, and then we throw it open for questions. Well, that's exactly what we're going to do right now. Awesome. So it seems like you're well-trained. We're here in the house of Strauss right. uh, in uh, central London. Um, and it's, you know, it's really, it's really great to talk to you about Levi's, and I'm, we're going to get to that in a bit. But I'm just really fascinated, first of all, to, to talk a little bit about your life before Levi's. Okay. Going way back. Way, way back. Way back when, when you were growing up. You know, every, every CEO I meet has their own backstory on how they ended up becoming a CEO. So, like, take us back to when you were growing up and, like, where did you grow up and what were you like and, you know. Okay, so um, there's been a little bit written about this here in the last year or two, but um, I... If you've ever watched the American television show Mad Men, that was my life growing up. Okay. My dad worked for NBC, you know, which is one of the big three TV networks back when there were only three TV networks in the United States. He was an advertising sales manager for NBC, so spent a lot of time selling media time to the advertising agents. This is in New York? This is in New York, and this is in the... I was born in the late 50s, so this is in the 1960s and early 70s, when it was a two or three martini lunch steak, big potato. Not for you, though. Not for me. My dad. <laughs> you know, he's the three-pack-a-day cigarette smoker, two martinis at lunch, the bar car on the way home, on the train going up to northern Westchester County where we lived. And uh, that was my life growing up. And my dad left home before I was awake to go to school and came home kind of late in the evening because he was doing the commute back and forth. Um, and I grew up in a somewhat dysfunctional family. I was the oldest of three boys. Um, my dad was an alcoholic. Uh, that fixed itself. He, he, he changed his life when I was in seventh grade. But, you know, my early years, I can remember standing between my parents as they were fighting. And, mm -hmm. I felt uh, a lot on my shoulders as the oldest child. Um, and, you know, we had to portray a life of a normal family when we'd go to school in the, in the morning. And uh, anyway, so that, that did form a part of who I am. I was always an overachiever. I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I know what my IQ score is. Um, but I always, you know, strive to do my very, very best. And that, you know, was I applied myself real hard at school. And what when, were you interested in in school? Um, actually, when I was in high school, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, okay. I don't know why. Uh, my college roommate, as it turns out, is a lawyer. And um, I actually, even when I was in the military, so I went to college, a small liberal arts school called Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, about an hour outside of Philadelphia. And I wound up majoring in international affairs, but one of, one of the life-changing moments I had was when I made the decision to apply for Army ROTC 
What does ROTC stand Reserve for? Reserve Officer Training Corps. Okay. Um, and, and I actually got a college scholarship from the Army for being an ROTC um, high potential candidate. So the Army paid for my college. And in return, I owed Uncle Sam four years in the military. After so you graduated. After I graduated from college. So I graduated with a regular Army commission, which is the same commission, because I was a top 10% cadet uh, nationally. It's the same commission that West Point grads graduate with, which meant if I wanted to make the military my career, I could have stayed in the Army. Um, so was that your first big decision in life? That was a big, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the choice of college is probably sure. most people's first big decision. Yeah. And Lafayette College, as it turned out, was a great decision for me. It's largely influenced who I am, I think. And liberal arts was a great thing for me to pursue because I, I do think of myself as like a, just an ongoing learner. And that kind of is what liberal arts did for me. Sure. Um, and then going into the military definitely played a key part in who I am. I mean, I'll, almost everything I know about leadership, I learned serving in the military. So I graduated from college in 1979. The Vietnam War was over for just a couple of years. I missed the draft by like two years. And when I, after I did officer basic course, I was assigned to the Third Armored Division in, in West Germany, outside of Frankfurt. So it was still when Germany was divided. Um, my military unit um, patrolled the East German border twice a year. Um, if you read the theory of how the Third World War was gonna happen, it was the Russian hordes coming through the Fulda Gap in West Germany. And I was stationed about 20 miles from the Fulda Gap between Frankfurt and Fulda. Um, but I learned a lot about about leadership in the Army. When I was assigned there, my platoon started, I was assigned as a second lieutenant, you know, 21 years old, fresh out of college. Um, the non-commissioned officers and the enlisted people had to salute to me. But I, I learned very quickly that you had to earn people's trust. I mean, yes, I outranked them, but they were all Vietnam veterans, and I learned really how to lead a team at that point in time. And uh, so the military really did play an instrumental role in my, in my life. Uh, but I made the decision pretty early on that I didn't want to make the military my career. Um, Why not? It wasn't a true meritocracy. People got, you got promoted pretty much on a clockwork type of program. And, and it wasn't until you got to very senior ranks that there became some differentiation, number one. Number two, as you got to those more senior ranks, there was a definite bias towards, you know, military school graduates, West Point grads, and um, but but most of all, I wanted to be in a place where if I did well, I would move ahead quickly, and if I outperformed my peers, I would move ahead quickly, and I was you know an ambitious guy, and at the same time, I also didn't want to move around every two to three years for the rest of my adult life with a young family. So those were the two key reasons why I decided to get out. Um, and when I got out, I worked with a search firm that specialized in placing junior military officers. And I interviewed with a broad range of companies. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but what I did know is who I was. And I knew kind of what made me tick. I knew what I was good at and I knew what I wasn't so good at. And I kind of knew the kind of environment I wanted to be around and I knew the kind of people I wanted to be around. And so as I was doing my career search, 
I interviewed at Procter & Gamble, uh, actually interviewed in both sales and brand management, and you know the P&G brand management thing pretty well. I certainly and, do. When I was graduating from college, I got a, an offer from P&G to be an assistant brand manager. Right, and I, so I started my career as an assistant brand manager at Procter & Gamble okay. in Cincinnati in 1983, and you know what really sealed the deal for me was this notion that by the time you get to be a brand manager, it's like mini general manager training. Yeah. And and if you do well at P&G, you'd make it to brand manager in three to four years. And the idea of kind of running a business and having that general management experience within four years of starting at a, at a company, which at the time was just recognized as being one of the greatest leadership development machines in corporate America, um, it just seemed like the right opportunity for me. And I can remember as vivid as if it was yesterday, walking into the front door of Procter & Gamble, thinking to myself, if I can make it to brand manager, I'm good. Okay. You know, like that was like an ambition and a dream. And 28 years later, I retired from Procter & Gamble as a group president running P&G's second largest business globally. And that was Gillette, right? And that was that was Gillette and the male grooming business. Okay. So I also had Old Spice and a couple of other brands within that portfolio. Yeah, you said earlier, and I'm quite interested to to know this because I I think knowing yourself is so critical to finding success in life. And you said that one of the things that you knew very clearly when you left the military is that you knew what you were looking for. What was it that you saw as an a potential assistant brand manager at Procter & Gamble that that made it seem so clear that it was a good fit so for you. So there were really two things and, and actually even to clarify about knowing myself I think at the end of the day I knew what my values were right and and it's actually one of the pieces of advice that I do give to people as they're looking for their you know where to start their career and their job is at the end of the day, you are largely all about who your character is and what values are important to you. And I've been really lucky. I've worked at only three institutions. I call them institutions my entire adult life. I'm 60 years old. I've been in working for almost 40 years. And over that 40-year span, almost 40-year span, I've worked at three places. The U.S. Army, it's been around for about 250 years. Procter & Gamble, it's been around for about 185 years or so, and Levi Strauss, we hit 165 years this year. And one of the things that's common between all three of those institutions is their values are very, very similar. It's about doing the right thing. It's about, it is about integrity and ethics. And um, I like to say, choosing to do the harder right versus the easier wrong. And that's, that's a big part of who I am, but part of the reason I stayed at Procter & Gamble for 28 years is my character and my values so closely aligned to the values of that company. And, and that meant a lot to me. There's one experience that I read about that you were involved with at Procter & Gamble that I'm just really curious about, which, which is Swiffer. Uh -huh. um, I did a, a case at business school once, I think, on the launching of that product and how the idea of innovation was kind of so firmly embedded in the process to create that product because it was something that didn't exist. Exactly. Can you talk, because in, and innovation of course is a big part of what you you guys do at Levi's right. and it's a really, it'll be a right. good segue into the next okay. 
next topic, but talk about that. I'm just curious about how you launch a product so, like Swiffer. Um, so the short version of the story, I guess, because I can tell the story. I can tell the long version. And yeah. I won't do that. But yeah. um, I, uh, I was promoted to general manager. Uh, my prior assignment, I was marketing director of the Folgers coffee business at P&G, which was one of P&G's largest U.S. brands. They've since sold it, but it was one of P&G's largest U.S. brands, and it was the second most heavily advertised brand at, in the United States at P&G. So it was a great assignment if you're a marketing person. I remember those commercials. Yeah, that's part of waking up. It's Folgers in your cup. And, um, and some were amazing, And but we would shoot. 30 to 40 commercials a year. I mean, we spent so much money in media and advertising, and, and if you're a marketing guy and an advertising guy, that's fun. Yeah. And I got called to the CEO's office and he said, congratulations, I'm promoting you to general manager of the hard surface cleaners business. And the little bubble over my head, the cartoon bubble over my head was, can you say no to a general manager promotion question mark? Yeah. Fortunately, I, I shut my mouth because the hard surface cleaners business was, it was a small business. Folgers was like $1.2, $1.3 billion. Hard surface cleaners in the U.S. was about $200 million. Um, Folgers was growing. Hard surface cleaners was declining. It wasn't strategically important to the company at all. And it was brands like Comet, Spick and Span, Mr. Clean, Lest Oil, brands that were old and dusty brands. And, and at first, I wasn't really excited about it. I look back on my career, and it was one of the best assignments I ever had. And even today at the, at the Chips and Breakfast, I talked about it's your experiences through your career that make you who you are. And I've worked on big brands, small brands, growing brands, declining brands, global brands, local brands. Those experiences, by and large, made me who I was or who sure. I am. So hard surface cleaners was in the steep decline, old brands that hadn't really innovated in a long, long time. And the business was pretty much the way the business was back in the 1960s, where mom stayed home and cleaned the house and cooked dinner for the husband and did, and hello, we were in the 1990s and we had two income families, mom was working, everybody was living a hectic lifestyle and the cleaning products category hadn't caught up with that. So, you know, the best definition of insanity is try to keep doing the same thing and expect different results. It was clear we weren't going to get different results doing the same thing. So we, we launched a new strategy, which oversimplified was to make cleaning fun and simple. And that hatched Swiffer, ultimately. Um, and it was, it, it was this idea of putting in the hands of, a cons of, the, of the consumer a simple product that would clean their house quickly. There were more hard surfaces. Uh, more and more houses were built, being built with hardwood floors. So this idea of a, a dusting type of mop, and we had a whole pipeline of innovation, including the wet mop, which was coming shortly behind it, uh, all stacked up. And we launched that product in the mid-90s. I think it was 1995 or 96. It's over a billion dollar brand now. Um, the whole category when I took it on was under $200 million. Swiffer is a global brand. It's available in over 100 markets around the world. Um, I still remember picking the brand name. And I remember saying, someday we're going to get a letter from a consumer telling us that they named their cat or their dog after Swiffer. And it happened four months after. Wow. And the key insight there, if I recall correctly from the case study, was that you needed to actually go into people's homes and understand how they were cleaning their homes. Exactly, and we, when we prototyped the product, we gave it to consumers, 
and we really knew we were onto something because when we went to pick the product back up from them, which we do with, you know, when we're testing sample products, when we went to take it back, they were begging us to keep it. We knew we were onto something. So I'm a big believer in in-homes, and in fact, I've got a great story from Levi's. In fact, the whole the selling idea, live in Levi's, literally came out of a consumer's mouth in one of my early in-home visits after I joined the company. Okay, well, let's switch to Levi's because that, that's obviously a main topic for the day. I was quite curious, you know, the switch from a place like Procter & Gamble after having spent 28 years there. What was it at that stage that motivated you to make the move? Because you could have continued, you know, up that yeah. amazing hierarchy. Yeah, although, um, you know, a new CEO had been promoted. He was only four years older than me. So the odds of me becoming CEO at P&G, I felt, were relatively low. Um, I had hoped that he would be successful. I mean, most of my net worth was in P&G stock at that point. Right. But, um, but I, I had gotten to the point in my career where I really did want to be a CEO, and um, I had been getting a lot of calls ever since I started running the Gillette business, and they were either for B or C companies, or they were in locations which I would never consider living in. And, um, and I was actually in China when I got the call from a headhunter saying, I think I've got something for you. And my eyes rolled and yeah, I've heard that. I've before, heard this right? before, yeah. And, uh, and she said, Levi Strauss. And the words out of my mouth were, oh, wow. In part because it was one of those rare brands. And I only, there were only a handful of them in my entire life where I just had this deep, personal, emotional connection. And, when I started doing my little, you know, research on the company and the brand and asking people about the brand, I, I discovered almost everybody has a Levi's story. Almost everybody has a Levi's story. And, and that's the kind of brand that it is. It's one of the most iconic brands in the world, not just in the apparel industry, in any industry. And if anything, I'm a brand guy. When I started doing my due diligence on the, on the company, I was shocked at, at what had happened. Uh, you know, this company, in 1996, we hit our peak revenue year of $7.1 billion in sales. <clears throat> the company was bigger, and the Levi's brand was bigger than Nike at that point in time. And we went from $7.1 billion in sales to $4.1 billion in sales in five years, and then just kind of bumped along very inconsistently through the early 2000s for the first decade or so of the early 2000s. So for me, you know, there's a saying, you only get to leave Procter & Gamble once, make it good. This looked like an incredible opportunity. You've got this amazing brand and what looked like a really inconsistent performing company and the opportunity to make the company great again, which is my line. The other guy stole it from me. <laughs> but make, make the company great again and, um, and, and make Levi's the brand, the brand that it was when I was growing up where... You know, JC, our brand president, likes to say, if you were at Woodstock, if you weren't naked, you were wearing Levi's. Right. And, uh, and it was the aspirational brand. When I was a kid growing up, everybody had to have a pair of Levi's. So tell me, you know, it's, I can understand the appeal of that opportunity. Iconic brand, huge business, yep. but declining and inconsistent. Right. And a huge opportunity to change it and turn it around. But obviously also... A gargantuan task. So when you're when you're a new CEO, where do you start? Yeah. 
Well, um, not only a gargantuan task, add to that, that just about everybody coming out of packaged goods into apparel or retail have failed. So I knew that the odds were tall, but I also, um, I felt one of the things that was missing was just leadership. So going back to my days in the military, I started where I always start, with a lot of humility and talking to a lot of people. And I started by, I sent six questions to the top 60 people in the company, and I went on a listening tour. I sent, I sent it in ahead of time, and then I sat down with the top 60 people for an hour. And the questions were pretty simple. I'm probably not gonna remember all six of them right off the top of my head, but what are the three things that you think we must change? What are the three things that we have to keep? What's the one thing you hope I will do? What's the one thing you're most worried I might do? And then, um, what, what's, um, what's the one thing you're most afraid of? And there was a sixth one, which I can't remember. But, and what was amazing was after about 15 or 20 of those interviews, a picture became pretty clear to me of where some of the opportunities were. It was clear what needed to stay. The values of the company, going back to that was one of the things that attracted me as well as you know, a company that's been around 165 years has to have values that run pretty deep. The values are important. The brands are really important, um, but it was also obvious we didn't have a strategy. Everybody was doing their own thing. Um, we had a certain amount of arrogance. Our advertising at the time was very, very dark. Uh, the Go Forth campaign was a very dark campaign. We were missing that emotional connection to the consumer. And, um, and so that's, I started with a listening tour. The other thing that I did being, you know, the quantitatively trained ex-proctor guy that I am, I asked the finance organization to just start breaking down the business and racking and stacking. You know, where do we make money? Where do we lose money? What's growing? What's declining? Um, what, where, what markets do we have big shares in? Where are we underdeveloped? Where do we have small shares? Where do we have opportunities in terms of different segments of our business? Yes, we make blue jeans, but what else what other categories are we in? What are our shares? What kind of opportunities? And as we did that, the picture became very, very clear what we needed to do strategically to get the business back on track. And we're very public with our strategies, but we launched the, the, the strategies that we've been executing against the last seven years. We launched six months, nine months into my start at the company. And there are basically four pieces to it. Grow our profitable core, expand for more, become a leading world-class omni-channel retailer, and then achieve operational productivity gains, which code language for save some money so we can reinvest back into our brands. And I, I can talk more about each one of those, but that's largely what we've been executing against. And you know we've delivered now five years in a row of top and bottom line growth, excluding the impact of currencies. Um, and we've now hit a, an inflection point with the growth rates accelerating pretty dramatically. Last year, we were up 8% in reported revenues. The first quarter of this year, we were up 22% in reported revenues off of growth the prior year. So we have hit an inflection point. The Levi's brand is clearly back. We're having a moment, and it's a moment that I think we can sustain for a number of years. So it, you make it sound so easy, right? Talk to 60 people, a clear picture emerges, develop a four-point strategy, execute flawlessly, get the growth back, 
you know, get hit an inflection point and voila. There was one other thing that I didn't mention. Which was? Get a great team in place. Okay. And, um, you know, I, I knew coming in that I would probably, that a couple of people would probably opt out and that I would probably need to move on a couple of others. I had 11 direct reports when I joined the company. <clears throat> um, nine of them were gone in the first 18 months. Wow. And so I basically changed the entire executive team. There's one person left from the original executive team. He was running supply chain at the time and he's now running Asia for us. Everybody else we brought in from the outside. And was that a necessary part of the overhaul? Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the things we also had to do is change the culture, which is the hardest thing to do. You can put a new strategy in place. You can start executing better, but changing the culture you know, to change the culture, you got to change the people. You got to change the leaders. And um, and there were just a number of senior executives, you know, direct reports to me who just couldn't get on board with the new program. And and it was going to be a heavy lift. We had to do we had to do a restructuring program, which we did in 2013. Restructuring meaning layoffs. Meaning layoffs. We laid off about 20% of the management workforce. We needed to do that to get our cost structure right so that we could free up cash to invest back in growing the brand and paying down the debt. The balance sheet was a mess when I, when I joined the company. We had $1.9 billion in debt. Our leverage ratio was four to one. So we refinanced a bunch of debt and we paid off, um, it was $1.9 billion. So we're now down to a billion dollars in debt. Our leverage ratio is 1.6 to one now. We're a lot more profitable. Our margins are higher. We're generating a lot of cash. And we're, you know, the financial sheet, which was a deficit for us, is now a strength. Okay. Um, but it does sound easy, right? It does. And I, I know, I know it's not. But as, as you look ahead, right, you've had this like seven year success story and it's a pretty remarkable turnaround. So congratulations. But there must be things that keep you up at night that you worry about, especially in this business landscape when it feels like everything's constantly shifting, whether it's like politics yeah. or technology or new rising global markets. Like, apart from just shifting and restructuring the business, you also have to operate in this environment of right. great change and uncertainty. How do you do that? Well, um, I think number one, you got to stay focused on the consumer. Um, the you know, the consumer is changing so fast that if we're disconnected from the consumer, we're going to be way far behind. Um, and that is probably job number one. I see it. My old business, the, the grooming business, the Gillette business, they got dis disrupted by Dollar Shave. Yeah. And, you know, young consumer, that happened two years after the Dollar Shave launched in 2013, about two years after I had left. We had been working on a subscription program because guys don't like to shop, number one. And number two, the blades are getting so expensive, they have to get the store to unlock it so they can buy. So let's sell it to them direct and go around the retailers and develop a direct relationship. So the idea was already there. It was there. And it got shut down because there was concern about Walmart or Target throwing us out. And Anyway, that's a separate story, but it, it does show that businesses are being disrupted all the time. and. And if you're not willing to disrupt yourself, somebody's going to do it to you. So it does start with understanding the consumer and really being very, very close to how the consumer is changing. Consumers are changing the way they're buying product today and where they're learning about product. Yes, having your own e-commerce site is important, but so is social media and, and other places, festivals, things like that where brands 
need to be, what brand like Levi's needs to be. Um, so being consumer obsessed is number one. The other thing, my biggest worry is that we get complacent or we begin to think we've got this all figured out because we don't. Um, part of what contributed to that 7.1 billion to 4.1 billion massive five-year decline was a huge amount of hubris and um, arrogance and, and, and thinking that the company could do nothing wrong and they completely lost the plot. So who the took the share from Levi's in that period of, of decline? Well, a lot of things happened at that point in time. So the, the uh, wholesale channel was consolidating, especially in the U.S. That's a big part of our business. So it used to be very, very fragmented. Every city had their own chain. Macy's gobbled them all up. Target was growing. Um, so you had the consolidation of the wholesale industry in the U.S., which at that point in time was almost 70% of the company's business, um, the rise of private label, and the strengthening of vertical retailers like Gap, but then you had, in the latter half, you had some of the fast fashion retailers starting to show up globally as well. So a lot of landscape changes that the company was blind to, premiumization of jeans too, which we should have led. We didn't even react to it. And we should, have, we should have owned that. That should have been us. Especially with so, that iconic brand. Totally. I mean, yeah. if anybody was going to lead premiumization of jeans, it should have been us. But the, the attitude internally is, why would anybody pay $150 for a pair of jeans when we sell the best jeans for 40 You know, because if there are some and why, consumers... And why do they? Because there are some consumers where spending $140 or $150 says, I can afford to buy these kind of jeans. Sure. And... Um, it's just like the beauty business as well, right? So pricing is a signal to quality. And, and we do now have a, a, a pyramid, a pricing pyramid on the Levi's brand alone and then also as a company with some of our value brands that, you know, go, that really cover the entire price spectrum. But so not getting arrogant, not getting complacent is the other big, big thing that is kind of on my on my list of things that we've got is so being consumer obsessed, not getting arrogant, and really focusing on quality of execution. At the end of the day, it's about our product. And one of the reasons the business has really started to turn is our product is getting a lot better and our strategies are working. So we are selling a lot more women product, women's product today than we did a couple of years ago. That was strategic. That was part of Expand for More. Um, our women's business today is over a billion dollars in sales. It was under 800 million just three years ago. It's grown 12 quarters in a row, and six of those quarters have been double-digit growth, double-digit on top of double-digit. So um, we're selling a lot more tops today. You know, we're mostly a bottoms business. Um, so we have lots of opportunities for growth. All you got to do is walk down the street here, and how many batwing tees are you going to see in a couple of blocks on Regent Street? Yeah, and um, and what goes better with a pair of jeans than a batwing tee? And when a consumer is willing to pay you $20 for, to wear your brand as a billboard, it says they love your brand. And yeah. more people are loving Levi's today than ever before. So that's a really good thing for so us. So if Dollar Shave Club was the big disruptor for the razor blades business, yeah. and you know the arrival of fast fashion and the kind of decline of the wholesale channel contributed to the disruption of Levi's business, right. you know, back when you started. What are the disruptors that you're looking at today? What are you thinking about? Well, um, 
clearly the, the strategic focus on direct-to-consumer for us is really, really important. So building out our e-commerce platform, when I joined the company, we had three people working full-time on e-commerce. We had outsourced almost everything, front-end, back-end. We now have about 100 people globally working dedicated to e-commerce, including engineers and programmers, and we're innovating there. Um, uh, so that part of the consumer experience and then com combining that with the physical retail experience. We're still building stores. Our retail is growing. We've grown eight quarters in a row. Our direct-to-consumer business has grown eight quarters in a row of double-digit growth. And, and it's not being driven by new stores. We are doing new stores, but we're growing year over year on our own stores as well. So, um, but to be successful as a retailer, you have to be innovating in your stores and it's about the experience. So we've brought in tailor shops now. We're customizing and personalizing product for consumers in our stores and it does create an experience. We've added print bars, which is driving a much younger consumer into our store because they can customize their own Batwing tee. And we had it here at Regent Street starting about a year ago it was the first store that we did it in and there were lines of teenage kids out the door waiting to print their own customized t-shirt so innovating with experiences in our stores online even with our own employees and how we do offices now is really really important to us what about the so-called rise of athleisure does that you know? Does that concern you? There was a, there was a moment maybe a couple of years ago where people were, exactly. Yeah. It was all about those was leggings. That a, was that a business of fashion? It might have been. It, it might have been. been. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, and actually, that's what caused us to step back and take a really hard look at our women's business. You know, it drove me crazy living in San Francisco. You know, you go to a nice restaurant and women would come in wearing a pair of Lululemon tights with a sweater and, and that's okay in a fine restaurant in San Francisco. And that used to be a denim moment. And so the focus became, what's really driving that? You know, what are the unmet needs that the consumer is saying that that tight is satisfying? And it was about the soft, comfortable material, the stretch, and the fact that they look good in it. They were super comfortable in it. You know, that's what they wear on long flights. They were super comfortable in it, and they looked good in, it, and it was and and it was you know super stretchy and soft, and so that became really the brief for the women's relaunch. Is we've got to give women what they're looking for, and the reason they're going to athleisure, and how do we do that in denim? And so if you go to our new women's line now, not so new, two and a half years since we've launched it, it's softer, stretchier, four-way stretch product that that kind of doesn't have baggy knees, so we've solved some of the problems by innovating on the fabric with great finishes, and we continue to innovate on the women's bottoms business, and it's driven our growth. I mean, it's been a big part of the turnaround story. And um, so athleisure is, is definitely a dynamic, and it's still growing. Um, we have some items that kind of start to get close to athleisure in our line. We'll never be an athleisure brand, but we've got sports tops right now in our line, crop tops, all with the logo T, body wear, body, body suits. Um, you know, so we're getting close to that, I guess, as an adjacency and, and maybe even have the right. I mean, I was just in the Regent Street store earlier today and, and 
women are asking for, do we have tights? So maybe it's a matter of time, but maybe we will have tights at some point in our store. But we'll do it in a way that's very Levi's, right? We're never going to be Nike or Lululemon. That's not who we are. Yeah. So if we do it, we'll do it in a, in a brand right kind of way so that it's adding to the business. Mm -hmm. The other threat that, you know, I hear all the time from executives like you is the Amazonian threat. The Amazonian, those, those Amazonians. How, what do you make, we talked about this last time you and I sat down, and I'm curious about how your views may have developed since then. But I mean, the inexorable rise of Amazon, mm -hmm. it's, it's unavoidable for a company like Levi's. Right, and actually we were, we've been doing business with Amazon since before my time. So this was a, a threshold that the company crossed, a bridge that the company crossed before I even arrived. And they have been one of our fastest growing customers and they're a top 10 customer, which is part of our profitable core, drive the profitable core. Part of that is our top 10 global wholesale customers. And we do have a good relationship with them. And I think we have significant upside opportunity with Amazon. Um, and it's, you know, like any customer relationship, there are moments of tension and, um, but, you know, we have a specific assortment for, for Amazon that's differentiated from some of our other wholesale customers. It is, and, and they carry both Levi's as well as Dockers, and they carry our value brand signature by Levi Strauss. Um, so we've got a good business with them, uh, particularly in the U.S., but also in Europe. Um, we also, you know, I mean, these pure play retail, these pure play e-commerce players are important customers around the world. So Tmall uh, in China, JD.com in China, and part of what's, I, I think what I'm seeing is um, in every big market, there are basically gonna be two big players that are either pure play or very, very big e-commerce players. So in the US, it's, it's Amazon and Walmart.com. And we're now selling Red Tab on Walmart.com because guess what? We weren't selling it before, but there were third-party retailers selling it. And I would scan the list of who those third-party retailers are. They're not our customers, so is it even really Red Tab? Right. And it could be gray market, black market, or counterfeit. And yeah. so I'd rather be in control of that consumer experience, working with those customers, than being subjected to the third-party marketplace where we don't even know if it's our product. Do you so, think do you think any major apparel business like Levi's can avoid these kinds of players like Amazon now? I you know, if you're a big democratic brand like Levi's, like Nike, um, where your reach is very, very broad. The consumer shopping online. I mean, Amazon is becoming the biggest search engine, right? If you're shopping for something, everybody goes to Amazon first, and um, and you've got to go where the eyeballs are. And and again, if you're a big democratic brand, if you're not controlling that experience in a first-party relationship with Amazon, there are going to be third-party retailers that are going to be doing it for you, and 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 you're not in control then of the consumer experience. You're not in control of what's showing up. It may not even really be real product that's being sold on that site. And very difficult for Amazon or Walmart or whoever to, to manage that third-party relationship to ensure that it's really the real product. So I think you got to go where the eyeballs are going. you got to skate to where the puck is going, so to like speak. Like Wayne Gretzky said. Exactly. And, and 
And so I think it would be really hard to just deny this forever um, if you're a big Democratic brand like, like Levi's. And we're much more in control of the experience by how we're executing today. And I'm happy with the relationship we have. And likewise, or kind of in a connected train of thought, you know, what, what happens to that wholesale business that was once upon a time 70% of your business with the rise of you know, your direct-to-consumer business mm -hmm. and the rise of these online platforms? What happens to the Macy's and JCPenney's where you know, years ago where everyone would pick up their Levi's? Yeah, I, they've got to continue to work to reinvent themselves, those customers as a whole. And, and maybe we've seen bottom at this point. I mean, I do think, especially in the U.S., but in other parts of the world as well, we're going to see continued store closures because the U.S. is way overstored, as, as you know. Um, so we will see more of, of, of those. Um, you know, some of, the, some of the wholesale customers today are doing okay. I mean, Kohl's has bounced back, and they've formed this relationship with Amazon and having Amazon drop-off centers in their stores, which drive traffic into the stores. So each one of the customers, I think, is trying to reinvent how do they better satisfy the consumer need today. They're going to have to close on profitable doors. Um, we're shifting more and more of our focus to the top doors and our biggest customers. Um, but it's a little bit of a, I like to talk about it as a melting iceberg. And it's just so it's a, question, a shrinking business. It, it, is, it is a melting iceberg, and it's just a question of how warm is the water and how warm is the air temperature. How fast will it continue to shrink? Um, and, and, but there are offsets for it as well. I mean, there are new growing customers, urban chains, for example, where we weren't doing business before, where we have opportunities to do business today. The fact that the brand is very, very strong helps us because, you know, Macy's still has a lot of doors and we're working with them on how can we be a bigger part of your business? And that means more floor space, more head to toe, more lifestyle experiences in your stores really focusing on the biggest stores and, and helping them deliver the same kind of ex consumer experience in their stores on Levi's as what a consumer would get walking out Herald Square and going down 34th Avenue and walking into the Levi's store. So, um, you know, including in some bigger wholesale doors, we're now putting in tailor shops. So I was right. in Printemps in, in Paris, and we've got a tailor shop in Printemps that does our Lot 1 customized jeans there. And so working with our biggest customers on how can we drive the right kind of experiences, the right assortment, um, the right innovation and newness to help them build their business both on Levi's, but also to drive traffic into their stores and help them you know, turn the corner and be more successful over time. But it is... I think we're recognizing that it is a little bit of a sink, uh, melting iceberg and that we have to find the other offsets because the wholesale business is important to us. Cool. Um, just a slight shift of direction here. I mean, being a CEO, now you've been doing it for a while, mm -hmm. what, does it, what does it take to be a great CEO? Ooh, um, so. I think the first thing is being very, very humble um, and uh, always being open and always listening. Um, I like to think of myself as not smarter than anybody else in the company. Um, I take great, I take great lessons listening to consumers, but listening to store managers and the staff in our stores about what are the consumers asking for, what don't we have that we should have. 
So I think humility is, is an important part. I think um, being, not wanting to be liked, but wanting to be respected, which means you're okay having the tough face-to-face -face conversation. You're okay making the hard decisions, the harder right versus the easier wrong. Um, I, I've seen a lot of leaders go down because they have this desire to want to be liked. And I don't really care if people like me or not, but I want to be respected. And, and I also want to, I want the company to be successful. I want the individuals who are contributing to that success feel like they've got a career ahead of them. Because I like to say, at the end of the day, nobody's going to remember me for my business results. They're going to remember me for what I did for them and helping them build their career and give them opportunities that maybe they wouldn't have had if the company had kept declining. And I want people to be proud, you know, to be able to go to a, a, a cocktail party on a Friday night and say they work for Levi's and people go, man, you're lucky. That's cool. Right. We live right in the middle of Silicon Valley now. I used to say the northern tip of Silicon Valley, but now we are in downtown San Francisco, which is the heart of Silicon Valley now. And um, a lot of the people that work at Levi's could go work at, at Facebook or Apple or Google or, you know, go down the list. And they stay at Levi's because of who we are as a company, because of the opportunities that they've got, because of our values, and because of what we're doing and trying to make the world a better place. And, um, and that brings me to the last point, which is not being afraid to take a stand on important issues. And I do think that there's a role for business and especially a role for CEOs. This is not about me as an individual, but the platform of the CEO job or office to take a stand on important issues of our time. So, as an example, and, I'm, and I've not been afraid to do this, um, you know, when President Trump came out with the immigration ban a couple of weeks after he got inaugurated, we were very, very quick to take a stand on it. This company was built by an immigrant, and, um, and immigration is such a central part of what makes America, America, I believe. And I felt very strongly that the approach that the administration was taking was absolutely wrong. And we were one of the very first to take a hardline stand on this. We've signed amicus briefs, briefs on it. Um, you know, we've, we've taken stands. We've not been afraid to take stands as a company f throughout the entire history that we were the first company to desegregate our, our factories in the South 10 years before it was law. Um, we provided same-sex partners healthcare benefits long before anybody else did that. We took a stand against the Boy Scouts. This one's really relevant because the Boy Scouts just renamed themselves the Scouts. But when the Boy Scouts said that uh, gay troop leaders would not be allowed, we stopped funding them and went public with it. And the company got 100,000 pieces of hate mail in a week. And there were only 3,000 letters in support of what the company was doing and they did not waver. They took the stand because they believed that it was the right stand to take. And now we look back, you know, 20 years later, 25 years almost later, and the company was right. And we look back on that and it's like, you got to be kidding me. That was like a tough stand at that point, but it was back in the day. It was a very tough stand. Yeah. So um, you've got to have courage and backbone. Well, and this is, this goes right back to the beginning about why you said you joined Levi's and why 
you know, you stayed so long at Procter & Gamble and why you chose to go into the military because the idea was to do the right thing. Right. And I think, you know, it's really admirable because I think, you know, in the, in the wake of the immigration ban or in, in terms of the rights for people with, you know, all of those issues, um, lots of companies haven't taken those stands. And, I, you know, I'm really, you know, that's really impressive. And I think that's really admirable. I wish more companies would. And I, I think... I think there's... As, as governments have backed away from their responsibility to the people in their countries and, and really to humanity, that void has to be filled by somebody. And I think the role of business is being redefined and it's not just about shareholder value creation, it's about stakeholders. And, and it's an obligation, I think, of leaders in the business community to stand up for these things. Absolutely. I have one last question for you. As someone who kind of came outside from outside the fashion industry so you're kind of like me or now you are an outsider yeah. like what you've worked in the fashion business now for seven years there's lots of people who follow this website the business of fashion not because they work in the business of fashion but because they want to work in the business of fashion what advice would you give to them about what it takes to be successful in this business because it's a very particular business in some respects it is and 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 I'm, I feel like I'm still learning, actually. Um, there's a lot to learn, a lot to digest, and it's very different than packaged goods. But um, I'm a big believer in, in this notion of humble, hungry, and smart. And um, I think humility and being willing to learn and, and devour anything that comes your way, and, and a big part of that for me and for our company is to be you know, just consumer-obsessed, hungry, um, like I said, you know, having that hunger to get the company back to the greatness that it once had is what gets me out of bed every day. I call it my noble cause. We're not there yet, but I'm hungry to achieve that and trying to get everybody else hungry and not being complacent. And then smart, you know, using your using your your wits and your cunningness. And it is it is a battle, but the the competition's on the outside. And when I joined the company, it was like everybody was competing inside. And it's getting everybody to work together as a team to win in the marketplace with the consumer and surprise and delight the consumer every time they walk into our store. But um, it's an amazing industry. It's so fast-paced, and that's what I love about it. And you can be wrong on something, and it goes away in a couple of months, and then the next season or the next drop, you can have a big hit. And so you get the chance to kind of make a comeback real quickly. But you know, when you've got momentum, it's just how do you keep that momentum going because you don't want to lose the plot. And, and that comes right back to that consumer obsession and just this, I think, you know, going back to the, the early part of the discussion, my liberal arts education and always wanting to be a learner has stayed with me. And I think that's helped me be successful is mm -hmm. never thinking I've got it all figured out because I know I don't. Are there particular areas or disciplines or skills that companies like Levi's are really looking for now that is harder so some people who are listening to this might be in college you know making yeah. decisions about what to major in or you know where to where what skills to develop like what are you guys looking for what so um you know the apparel industry if i compare it to packaged goods and proctor packaged goods and proctor um incredibly 
data-based, very analytical, very data-driven on everything. And the apparel industry, in part because it does move so fast and fast, and because a, a brand with the scale of Levi's, we actually can create trends. We're not as data, it's a little bit more of a fly by the seat of the pants kind of industry. That's starting to change though. Big data is gonna change everything. And we're now, you know, we're now getting experience with artificial intelligence and how can artificial intelligence help make us, help us make better informed decisions. So I think the fashion industry over time is gonna to pivot to more and more use of data and data-driven analytics than it has ever had before. At least in this company, I can say that with a huge degree of certainty. And I think it's gonna change the industry. I mean, you already see brands that are based on artificial intelligence like Stitch Fix, which has a market cap of you know a couple of billion dollars. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so, and we have way more data than Stitch Fix does. So how do we take that data that we've got and start you know, massaging it and, and then turning it into useful insights that can help us make better decisions from what an assortment should look like, how to, how to assort down to the store level based on real data, um, where to put our stores in the future based on real data, um, things that the computer and artificial intelligence can do that no one human being could ever be able to do. And I think that's really, really exciting. But we will always have the need for creativity and vision and courage from the design and the merchant side of the business. And, and that will never go away. I just think we're gonna be able to make better database decisions around important you know, financial decisions that the company's gonna to have to make. And, and I think that could open up lots of new types of growth opportunities for people in the future. Well, on that note, uh, and very useful advice. I, thank you for chatting today. It's, um, it's really nice to speak to someone who's got such a clear and focus, and maybe that's the military thing, but it's just there's such clarity in your thinking and advice. So it's um, super useful to me personally and hopefully interesting for everyone who's made it this far in the podcast. Um, it's time to sign off, but um, Thank you, Chip. Thank you very much. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. That's all for this week's episode of Inside Fashion. If you want to check out more on Chip and his ideas, I did an interview with him last year that was part of our State of Fashion 2018 report. Check that out. There'll be a link in the description to this podcast, and we look forward to hearing from you next week. That's all for now. Bye-bye. So if you're aspiring to be a successful CEO like Chip Berg and many of the others who come to BOF every morning, you should be subscribing to BOF Professional. It is my go-to read every single day of the week. Um, it's the first thing I open up in the morning. What makes the business of fashion different than other industry publications that I do look at is the depth of coverage on the fashion industry specifically. It is focused single-mindedly on the fashion industry, the trends, what's happening out there, and deep coverage on the things that matter most to me as a CEO. And just for you, our podcast listeners, we're offering you a special 25% off of your first year of an annual BOF professional membership. Simply go to businessoffashion.com backslash memberships 
or click on the link in the episode notes below. Select the annual package and then enter the special discount code PODCAST2018 at the checkout and enjoy and give us your feedback too. That's all for this week. We'll see you next time on Inside Fashion.